welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we are diving into a twofer. Twofer. We got a twofer. Just like last week. Just like last week. Okay. That's right. Only this week, it's the same story two times. All right. Before we get started, how was your week? I am very happy because I think I finished all the moving. I think that we have... Aside from my bedroom, which is where we're recording from today. It is. We are in Lemuel's bedroom today. It's very exciting. Last week, my bedroom. This week, his bedroom. Next week, also his bedroom, because it's a double record. And then who knows what's who after knows? that. It could be in the kitchen. It could be in the bathroom. Anyhow. Probably neither of them. I think the bathroom might work. Mm, that's a very echoey location. It's pretty clearly, we will sound like the gods from Mount Olympus, or at least the way I imagined them when I was a kid. I always thought there was a lot of reverb on Mount Olympus. Anyhow, um, how was your week? Good. Okay. I don't feel like I'm done moving. Okay, that's true. That's, I have my whole stuff. craft area to set up, which mm-hmm. should be fun, but is daunting at this moment. So yeah, I feel like the last my work area, my writing. It always takes me a little while to adjust to a new place. Of course. Um, in terms of writing. And so it's having to find where I'm comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, you've moved your desk like three times. Yes, I have. Now it's in the place that I wanted it in the first place. Is that where it's going to yeah. stay? I, I don't know. It depends. I have to have my bed just in the way so I can watch television when I can't go to sleep, which is frequently. And then I want to have my desk to where I can have my back to the television. I'm not watching it instead of writing. You could just turn it off when you're writing. I, I don't understand the words coming out of your mouth. Oh, okay. I don't know what I you're gotcha. saying. It's like a foreign language to me. Understood. My, my, my sorry. All right. Let's dive into some familial relationships, shall we? <laughs> no, shall we not? <laughs> well, I think we I shall because enough. we have to. As a matter of fact, this, this does in some ways resemble the familial relationships that I, I'm aware of Oof. or the through experience. So we watched not one, but two adaptations Uh of the 1984 short story Grandma Mm -hmm. that uh, was originally originally published in Weird Book magazine. That would be a really appropriate place to publish it. And then collected into the 1985 collection, Skeleton Crew. And this is a Cthulhu mystery. Mythos story. Cthulhu. Cthulhu. I'm told I'm pronouncing it very wrong, but... Oh, I'm sure. It's C-T-H, which is a Mm. thing that the English language does not have. So we are making it work. who is a Lovecraft scholar, Mm. and she told me once or twice how to pronounce it. And it apparently, the proper enunciation sounds like you're letting air out of a punctured tire. Um, so I'm not going to try it. Okay. It's very, that kind of thing. Got you. Um, which makes sense. So for anyone who doesn't know, uh-huh. we'll start with H.P. Lovecraft. All right. He's not a favorite. He's, he's not a favorite of me. I know there's a lot of people who have a great deal of enthusiasm for him. Yes. He was a word fiction writer who contributed a lot to magazines in the 30s, I think was probably his heyday. He's a very problematic individual because he had horrible personal views. He was misanthropic. He was misanthropic, yes. hated everyone, Mm -hmm. especially mm, anyone who wasn't a white man. Yes. He also hated white men. Right. 
<laughs> but he used fewer slurs against yes, them. Yes, he um, he was a uh, he probably would be a very difficult person to get to like. Uh, he died in penury, which is the, uh, a way of saying it. But he had a lot of literary associations, people who went on to become very influential, who carried on his work and actually elaborated on it. Yes, people like uh, Howard Robert Howard, who created Conan the Barbarian and included the Cthulhu stories or this mythology that Lovecraft created mm-hmm. um, into those stories. Robert Bloch, who wrote Psycho, and Stephen King was one of the people who yes. continued on this sort of mythology. So he has a lot of repercussions for writers. Yes. And his I've never read anything by Lovecraft, but I have read stuff in the Cthulhu mm-hmm. mythos. I've also, or Orkham, the Arkham yeah. mythos. That's another way that it's referred to occasionally. And... I play a game called Arkham Horror, living card game, right? wherein you are various characters that are being sort of ever-expanded and remade by a company called Fantasy Flight Games, mm-hmm. and they have a number of games that take place in this mythos, card games, board games, etc. Uh, I, I have read, like I said, n- no one full story of... By Lovecraft, I have read excerpts. I don't find his writing particularly... Involving? Good. (laughs) Good is the word I was going to use. I feel like he's... uh, He overwrites. Yes. Uh, Now, he he was also a person who was writing for payment by the word, so that's not entirely surprising. Kind of my very quick literary criticism of Lovecraft, the good and the bad, right? He wrote a great deal. And supported himself that way, living very close to poverty at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really admired Edgar Allan Poe mm-hmm. and Arthur Machen. These mm-hmm. were his favorite authors. He wrote a really useful essay on the supernatural literature, which I have, mm-hmm. because it's a good guide to what to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also get to know a lot of his influences through there. He admired that Poe's style, which was written for a hundred years earlier at this audience. Mm-hmm. But he still kept that sort of very antiquarian style of yes. writing. Which you also well, write in a, an antiquarian way, not But the not same. to that extent. Okay. To where, you know, here's a person writing in the 30s who's writing something that's elaborately overwritten right. and purple. So that's kind of off-putting to some people. Right. There's not a great deal of emphasis on character in his No, stories. because he doesn't like people. Right. So his characters <sighs> tend to be just about the same. You're reading the same leading character. Yeah. Where so his prose style is off-putting. There's not any really revealing or involving passages of dialogue. There's not a quotable line. Right. You can sit through Raymond Chandler for instance, mm-hmm. his detective fiction. Yeah. And half of what Marlowe says is so quotable, quotable and funny. Yeah. Highlightable, re- replayable, right. yeah, all that good stuff. Okay, so there's writers like that. This is not he's not one of them. Where he does kind of excel is creating real atmosphere and mood for his stories. Yeah. And he did create a kind of very loose mythology that's been elaborated. Yes. If you read his original stories, it's not as as uh, as richly textured as it is now. Right, because so many people have also uh, right. built, written in this. There are dozens of short story collections from modern mm-hmm. writers expanding on this yeah. mythos. And the whole mythos, um, loosely, we'll say, 
circles around these ancient gods right. who are currently asleep, and if they done wake up, we are finished. If y'all have seen Cabin in the Woods, it's also, it's also the Lovecraft mythology. One um, of these stories. And I don't know that they even... They may use one of the names for one of the old ones, right. the ancient ones, in that movie. Um, that was, yeah. That was, sorry. It, sorry, everyone, if you haven't seen Kevin in the Woods. That's a big spoiler. Right. <laughs> um, the, so, like I said, where he excels is creating this sort of atmosphere of dread. Yeah. There's a lot of... Um, there are interesting characters, but they're not characters that interact with anyone. Um, like in Call of the Cthulhu or in uh, the Dunwich Horror, there's a very interesting villain, but it's not ever how he interacts with other people. It's just he's a character. Yeah. Of the issue that the best of his work, if you were going to get together the best of Lovecraft, it could amount to a dozen stories. Okay. Out of an enormous output. Yeah. Um, and that's. Another thing, there are stories that have really interesting images, but in terms of things that come together as a whole, Dreams in the Witch House, The Dunwich Horror, The Shadow of Written's Mouth, which is almost like an action story. Uh, there are stories like that that really stand the test of time. The issue that you're always going to have with Lovecraft is that most of his horrors surround miscegenation and impure yeah. cultures. And so yeah. it, his He feelings, was a straight-up racist, yeah. <laughs> His feelings, which would nowadays be equated with white supremacy, right? Um, they uh, they really are the focus of a lot of his work, and you can't avoid that. You'll see it in anything that he writes. There mm -hmm. is an element of of that, even in the best of his work. So it's something that's off putting to people now. Right? There's been a huge shift on him uh, and his his uh, place in modern literature, mm -hmm. and there's a big pushback because there are some people who feel. He was a product of his time, and we shouldn't be applying, approaching him with modern standards. But even for his time, he is very racist. Yeah, yeah. He is, and yeah. you can talk about somebody's racism mm -hmm. from a hundred years ago, right? And not totally write off their work, but you should look at their work critically through the lens of, right. "Hey, it's not cool that this dude was racist." Right, and so I and his. I, I think all of his stuff is now public domain too, right? Which is why everybody so, yeah. can write. So, so his estate is not getting any money off of these things, things like that. I think the. I, I think with Lovecraft, you have the issue that you don't have. I mean, I don't have. When I'm reading H.G. Wells, or I'm reading Jules Verne, or I'm reading Rudyard Kipling, there are moments when you run right into. Anti-Semitism, right? Or you run into sort of depictions of people from other cultures as being kind of ignorant or backwards. Or the noble savage, love right. that. Which is that too. You get some of that. Um, but I, the issue that I have with Lovecraft now is how ardently he's being defended by people who don't want to even give that much and say, "Yeah, but we can't." Yeah. You can't fault him for that. I can't but we fault can't him for fault that. Him for just very stubbornly sticking with these very unlightened views. Oh, yeah. No, for Regardless sure. of how people were trying to educate him around him. Right. What we've discussed in the past is an author like Edgar Rice Burroughs, 
who you see progress and accept differences about race and culture, mm -hmm. over time, Lovecraft never evolved as a person. Gotcha. He stayed the same guy his entire life. These both stem from Grandma, mm -hmm. the Stephen King story, as we said, from 1985. And the first thing we watched was a Twilight Zone episode, right. also called Grandma, from 1986. So this is the first revival of Twilight Zone. Yes. It's not the original, and this was, uh, I remember when it came out, I was in high school, and it was a big deal. Um, Harl Nelson was the editor for the episodes, and he wrote this one. He wrote this one. So this premiered, this episode premiered on the 14th of February, right. a lovely Valentine's Eve. Yes. Um, Happy Valentine's, Grandma. And it hews very, the, the, the episode of Twilight Zone hews very closely to the story. Right. In that it takes place in an hour or an hour and a half? Well, yes. And <laughs> Maybe actual, two hours. Right. The two actual segment is only 20 minutes long, right? It was just a little over 20. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was very short. And it stars almost by himself, mm -hmm. Barrett Oliver, uh, who one might know from the never-ending story, the right. original never-ending story. Uh, he plays Bastion. And uh, this is basically the only ever th other thing he ever did. <laughs> I think he played a robot child. I, I, I'm trying to remember. I was a teenager at the time. My nephew was very young, so I, I wound up watching a lot of kids' films from the period because he was watching them. You know how you're just sort of around a lot. Mm -hmm. I seem to remember him playing Daryl, was it? Uh, he's playing a robot child, and there was it, he, he had a career for a while. I don't ever remember seeing him any older than a teenager. No, he was Daryl. You're right. Okay. D-R-Y-L. Daryl. He was also... Cocoon. I've forgotten that. Victor Frankenstein in the original Frankenweenie. The oh. original Tim Burton short Frankenweenie. He voiced Victor Frankenstein. Uh, yes, he was in Daryl in Cocoon. Uh, he was in Cocoon the Return. His last movie was 1989. When he was teen, he was sixteen years old, and he I think, now he's a photographer. I think he's actually not bad as a child actor. I, I don't think that much. Yeah, of, there's not a great deal asked of him in some of his parts. I mean, that's true. I really, but, I love the Neverending Story. Uh -huh. He is not the best part of it, but I love him. Well, in he's it. barely in it, really. I think really the um, the kid that plays Atreyu is in it is more. In it more, but. He's in it for... He's in the framework. He's got at least 30 minutes of screen time. That's mm. a significant amount of time for a so. child by himself, because that's the other thing. He's almost always by himself in that as well, well talking to nothing. And right. in this, he's by himself with a voiceover, and that is how they sort of deal with it, so right. that he's not talking out loud. Uh, I don't know if it's entirely successful, uh, but Georgie is his character's name. He is left home alone, to uh, care for his grandmother, who is ill, right, uh, demented, and I say that in the in the form of has dementia, okay, uh, or some sort of degenerative brain disease. She's not all there. Uh, his mom has to go tend to his brother. I believe is in an accident, so she rushes off, and uh, his one job is to get her tea if she calls for tea. And wouldn't so you know? A similar theme to as we were talking about Pet Cemetery, where it's the responsibility yes. of one sibling to take care of another one who's very ill, 
and that sibling dies. Yes. And so this is very similar. This is very similar. And frankly, it's much scarier, I think, as a person who's had to take care of someone with dementia. Yeah. There's a... Oh, this is bad parenting 101. This child should never have been left alone with with an elderly person in the state. Right. And the mom just sort of sneaks out because I think part of the element of taking care of an elderly person with medical needs is the idea that they're always, they're at a constant. Yeah. Because so much of the time that you spend with them is just them sleeping. You think nothing will happen during those few minutes. Right. And and that's what happens here. Yeah. So she calls for tea and uh, he walks down the hall with his, with her tea and I'm so sorry. We have a co-host on this episode, apparently, because Vicky can't shut up. Won't shut up. We closed the door. She wouldn't She wouldn't be kept quiet. Now she's come up, sit next to me, and is also being super loud. I don't know what your problem is, ma'am. She has thoughts on Grandma, too. She didn't yeah, like it. Right. She thought it was scary. She didn't, she didn't like She didn't like it. So the- the uh, so progression he, of this episode is him just discovering his fears that she's a witch, pretty much. Yes, right? um, and she is. You hear these over these voiceovers of now she's dangerous and right. how she shouldn't be left alone and how she could hurt somebody because she's her senility has sort of taken her ability to control herself away from her. There's a lot of. Oh, she's dead. She's going to die. She's going to die, and it's going to be my fault. Like, there's a lot of that in the voiceover. Right. Uh, and then she, uh, he, he ends up dropping her tea and runs out of her room. But then he has to, like, suck it up and go back because this is what an 11 year old should have to deal right. with. Uh, he cleans up the mess, and there's a panel in the floor, and he, uh, there's a red smoky light coming from that panel on the floor and he's here screaming and uh, he like grabs her books and runs away and then looks at these books that are in a text that he does not understand. Illustrations seem like they are witchy and she is involved in some sort of and I, when we say witchcraft in this case, it is very much no, the no, selling the, one soul to the devil. This is not witchcraft. This is calling up the ancient ones yes. and mentioning the Lovecraft's elder gods by name. And he try goes back to the room and tries to wake her up and can't. So he runs to the phone call the phone to call the hospital. He thinks about how she has to cover. He has to cover her face if she is dead test her breathing with a mirror, which he does do, but then he's afraid he didn't do it long enough. And all of this is happening on the screen as this sort of panicked voiceover is yeah. over the over top of it. Um, and then he, as he's triple checking her death, uh, she grabs him and one eye opens and glares at him. And she says, you were always my favorite, Georgie. You were always my favorite. And she pulls him into her bosomy embrace, cutscene. And then we see George sitting at the table. And his mom comes home. It's about an hour later. And he says, Grandma died. There was nothing he could do, but also it's his fault. I think he says both right. of those things. And she tries to comfort him. And she 
pulls him once again to her bosom. And then we zoom in on Barrett Oliver's face. And now his eyes are red and glowing. And yes. the, the uh, implication here, of course, is she has transferred her soul skeleton key-like right. to this child. So how did you feel if it, how it worked as an... Did it work for a 20-minute segment of a television program? I think so. It's hard when you com- combine voiceover with an 11-year-old. Like, uh-huh. that's a lot. Uh, but I think for 20 minutes, it's fine. If it had been 40 minutes, I would have been like, woof, we need to end this. Right. Uh, but it's I, very creepy I to have him just very scared. Well. Yes. I think it worked very well in terms of, and there's only one failing that it had, which is... Um, Bad that, mom. No. Well, well, bad notes, Darlene Flugel. I'll forgive her. She had the sculptural cheekbones. We are. You from, don't even see her face until well, the very end. Until the very end, it's <laughs> like, why on earth did you hide her face? The she is the one of the victims in the eyes of Laura Mars. Oh, okay. She was part of the lesbian couple that right. that unfortunately gets killed, and she's the ditzier one, who's a lot of fun. Uh, her character is. Um, and the fact that you had this film made at that time, it was just very matter of fact that these two girls were a couple. So, and uh, in in this one though, I do want to point out that uh, she is saying the name Cthulhu, Cthulhu, right. Cthulhu over and over again, which is different than the book and the other movie that we watched, which right. we'll talk about. Uh, but yeah, they switched it to Cthulhu so that you would know, like it was, it's the easiest name. Like they didn't even go to like. Azathoth or, you know... Yogg-Sothoth. Yogg-Sothoth, yeah. Whichever. It's, um, it's all nonsense. I felt that the real failing, though, was that the actual grandma herself wasn't a person. It was a puppet, it right? It looked for all the world like an animatronic puppet. Mm. There's a hand. And so we never see so much as its face as much as we see one of the eyes. And so it's never... It doesn't have any personality as anything other than some sort of puppet lying on a bed. Yeah. I think that was a kind of a failing. Which you is, know what it reminded me of? What? Suspiria. How do you mean? The mothers in Suspiria. Yeah, I can see that. Where they are not like real entities either. Right. Uh, it also had this whole story really, um, spoiler, 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 uh, has shades of heredity to me. Or I heredity can, has shades, shades of the of story, this, I should right. say, because heredity followed the story and to both of these movies uh, with You're My Favorite. It, the way Heredity was going until it veers sharply to the left right. uh, was uh, something that I was thinking was like this, where Grandma was going to take over the girl or something similar to that. That's not what happens, y'all. But yeah, I, I appreciate the fact it has a... I remember... Um, God, no, I don't remember the name of the author who talked about a good ghost story being essentially like a joke. There's a setup and there's a punchline. Yeah. And this one has a good punchline. Yeah. And it works. And it preys on all those fears of being alone, of fears of illness uh, and death and children who aren't able to process either of those things. Right. So as a realization of the short story, it works really well. But the failings of this episode are fixed by the film version. I think so. So, yeah, let's switch to that. Uh So, in 2014, and that brings us to our Stephen King timeline, Mm -hmm. because I didn't even know about the other thing until you brought it up. It was not on my radar, as they say. Um, 
2014, the movie Mercy is released, produced by Jason Blum. It's one of the early Blumhouse films, right. uh, starring one Chandler Riggs. You might know him as Carl, Carl from The Walking Dead, uh, as well as um, Mark Duplass playing a real dick. Francis O'Connor, Shirley Knight, Joel Courtney, and Dylan McDermott. Um, it was released basically straight to video by Universal uh, in October of 2014. And so, because it is a movie, it expands on this story significantly. And right. it opens also in voiceover, but there is actually very little voiceover in this one. Yes. We don't get the internal dialogue that we're monologue that we're so familiar with uh, from Stephen King's stories. Yeah. You've seen enough of these, you realize that people spend a lot of time talking to themselves. Yes. Well, it's also a lot of, I'm a writer, so this is me writing it down, but in a film story, I ha or a film yeah. version, I have to be saying it out loud because watching me write is boring and you're not going to read what I'm writing on, this, on the page. So, uh, see, like... Uh, Stand by me, right? Like right. the the uh, outside narrative to stand by me, but we do get some voiceover with um, Chandler Riggs as George, same name, uh, talking about how his he he knows it might be weird, but his best friend is his grandmother, and showing their relationship. And he's got this relationship with his grandmother, who's played by Shirley Knight. Why do we know Shirley Knight? We know Shirley Knight because she is an incredibly popular guest star on television shows all through the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. She made her career in the era of classic television. So she's done... Mm. If you look at her TV uh, work, it, it, it crosses all generations of television. Maverick, The Virginian, The Fugitive, the Lie, Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, Barnaby Jones, Medical Story, yeah, Playing for Time, Tales of the Unexpected, Hammer, House of Mystery and Suspense, right. up to Spencer for Hire, 30-something, Murder, She Wrote, The Equalizer, Matlock, up to NYPD Blue, Sybil, ER, Law & Order SVU, House, and... Uh, most recently, something called Mob Doctor. And she's a remarkable actress with a really long career, and some of that was on stage, some of that was in, and she's been in mainstream theatrical movies. She also plays Paul Blart's mom uh, in both of those movies. Sorry, everyone, I didn't mean to take away from her in any way. In 1969, she did a film with a very young Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, which is a film that I admire her performance in, but her character is so repugnant to <laughs> that movie, The Rain People, where mm -hmm. she plays a woman who runs away from her husband out of boredom and attempts to hook up with the first stranger she meets, who's a brain-damaged football player mm -hmm. played by James Caan, and then is really upset that she's saddled with this guy now. And she keeps trying to dump him off on characters she meets on so this road like trip. like a Twin Peaks storyline. Right. It's it's very I mean it definitely was a Twin Peaks storyline. I, I shouldn't say repulsive, I mean that's unfair, but she's playing a person who's attempting to become liberated or actualized for herself and then keeps getting saddled with the responsibility. Mm -hmm. And she's very unlikable, but she still keeps her character very watchable. 
So, yeah, she's been an admirable actress yes, for a long and time. And she's very good in this. And it solves the problem that was on Twilight Zone, which is you depersonalize grandma into a monster. Yeah. Here she's a person. Which, I mean, it makes sense if you're just adapting the short story. Right. Because in the short story, grandma is a monster. Right. But, I mean, it's my problem is that there's she's so far removed from being human in the episode that she doesn't even look human when mm-hmm. you see her. Whereas this actress is able to breathe a lot of life into it. Right. And a lot of personality into well, a part What I'm that, saying is in the... In the what right, the no, Twilight I understand Zone, how that realizes the short story. Right, and in the Twilight Zone, it's not about her right. as a person. It's about his experience with her as a monster. And she is, in fact, a monster since she basically kills him and steals his body. <laughs> like, I would argue that's pretty monstrous behavior. So we see her, and she's healthy at the uh-huh. beginning. Um, but then she suffers a series of uh, illnesses and finally a stroke. Right. And uh, her, George's mother is basically forced by his siblings or her siblings to care for her as right. she declines. Uh, she's being kicked out of her home it's unclear why, although the orderly that ends up helping them move brings a Bible and says, Which I only bring this. They're like, they ask, do you take that everywhere? And he says, only when I'm with Mercy. Mercy is her name. That right. is the, the title of the film, and it is also her name. Right at the very beginning, the first thing that we, one of the first things that we see is a young Mercy, uh, maybe mid-twenties, cooing to a baby as her husband comes in and hits himself in the head with an axe. Yes, I don't understand. In the house that they then all live in. Exactly how you split your own head open with an axe. You have to be very drunk and very determined. And I think both of yeah, those there's things. There's a line that somebody says later in the film that speaks of a lot of determination if you're going to split your own head in half. Yes. I don't know that it's possible, but uh, being that we're talking about a film where an elderly grandma reaches out from behind the grave after selling her soul to Haster, I don't think realism is actually a concern. No, but I would say mm-hmm. given... And this is a man who uses a, an axe on the yeah. reg, right? He's also a farmer. He's probably fairly strong. He's clearly intoxicated. Uh, I think all of those things. What I go appreciate into it. is that we see it several times. We do and from a lot of different vantage points. Good I, shadow work happening. Uh, that's what I appreciate <laughs> is the fact that we don't have to see some sort of graphic portrayal of a head splitting open over no. and over and over again. We don't really ever see it. No. We see splatter behind. We see shadows. We see her face when it happens. Right. But we don't see. The actual, it's more than what that. they refer to as the accident. Ha 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 ha. And even in the in the captions, it was a x dash accident. I was just like, okay, guys, everyone, cool out. Uh, and so George and his brother and his mom all moved back to this farm where she basically wants to just die at home. That's right. that's the goal. And at, at in the small town is also uh, Dylan McDermott, who is married but has never not loved 
George's mom. Right. And George's mom also He's still also loves married him. married to a woman who paints really frightening pictures. Yes. It, and it looked like they got Clive Barker to loan them a few of his right. paintings. Um, but is also, like, afraid of everything. <laughs> well, she has no conviction about what she's painting. She she uh, later reveals when she's, cons- you know, consulted as an expert on the occult because one of her images is actually uh, not come to life necessarily, but one of the Im- creatures that she's painted is prowling around the estate. Yeah. When she's asked, she's saying, oh, no, that's just a bullshit story I tell people to buy paintings. Like, right. it freaks them out. So she has no conviction about this at all. Yeah. But she's playing into a full black fingernail polish and heavy mascara image that isn't, as it turns out, true. Yes. Uh, so as she's time... also not very nice. No. But that doesn't mean that her husband should be cheating on her. No, no, no. But I mean, she lords over him the fact that she can sell her work and he can't. Oh, I don't. Yeah, there's a, a moment that. where she does that. I think it's because she's aware of the fact that her husband. Yeah, I'm sure. Is he's not subtle no. about it. Uh, and so what ends up happening is they find this book with three drops on it, uh-huh. uh, like rain, they, like a uh, droplet shapes carved into the cover. This they find out is a book of tears, right? Wherein you cry on it and basically wish for what you most want, and the book will give it to you now. Come to find out, Grandma, after having a miscarriage when she was young, Mercy, we'll, we'll, we'll call her Mercy, having a miscarriage when she was young, had found this book, cried over it, become pregnant, and then you hear, and you hear from the town priest uh-huh. how everything bad that ever happened just sort of Gift over mercy. The town priest, whose name is Father Exposition. He is Father Exposition. He's also Father Loves Mercy a little bit. Right. Um, she had stopped coming to his church long ago, it turns out. There's a good reason for that. So it turns out basically what we what we glean, and it's it's basically told to us, but not step by step, right. is that she has kept this book and sold pieces of herself to who we come to find out is Haster, uh, who is... Uh, Haster's complicated. <laughs> uh, let me see if I can find a... A reference to Haster like a, a, as the personality? The unspeakable one, the king in yellow, He, him who is not be named, Astor, Jaster, Hazater, or Kaiwan. Entity of the Cthulhu Mythos, though he was did not, not originally right. from the Cthulhu Mythos. First appeared in Ambrose Bierce's short story, Haita the Shepherd, as a benign god of shepherds. He's briefly mentioned in Lovecraft's Whisper in the Darkness. Robert Chambers used him in the stories to represent both a person and a place associated with several stars. Uh, so he's a, and then the King in Yellow, which uh, if you are familiar with the first season of True Detective, uh-huh. will ring a little bit familiar, even though they didn't really 
explore, which is a pity because I wanted them to go there. Yes. Uh, And so this is a god. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, evil, evil, ba- evil and bad, evil and bad. Any anytime a god requires part of your soul for something good to happen, stop making deals. Yeah, Just back you know, out. I, I, I Leave think, it alone. Yes. But she ends up having three kids with a husband with an axe to his head. So good on her, I guess. Uh, when the when the crops were blighted, it was everybody but her crop. I mean, it's this right. constant thing, and she would get. Meaner. Well, every, every time, every something. time a little bit of her soul goes away, right. a lot of her compassion and her personality begins to leave with it. Feels like Voldemort. That's probably a very old idea, and I'm sure J.K. I mean, Rowling. I'm is sure, there. yes, and she borrows from all the things. So, at this point, towards the end of the film, so so um, George has cried in the book and. Wished for mercy to get better. That right. is what his wish was. And at this point, the book and the and the the book. I'm sorry, the movie Mercy and the Twilight Zone episode and the book they're based on all converge right. with uh, an accident happening where Georgie's brother is. He's attempting to destroy the Book of Tears. That's right. By throwing it into a wood chipper. And it... And uh, a large piece of wood flings out and directly into his abdomen. Into his abdomen. So mom takes him to the hospital. I'm glad that they did this, too. I'm glad that they showed that a person can have an accident, because quite frequently, especially when I was a kid, someone got stabbed in the abdomen and they immediately fell over dead. I'm glad that... As long as he doesn't pull that out, right. he's got a little bit of time. That uh, that that was an element to the It's the, the exit story. that really yeah. causes the issue. Yeah. So, uh, he, mom and mom and brother rush off, and then we have Georgie home alone with Grandma and Hester. And Hester turns out, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Wackiness ensues, and she's always been his favorite. Uh huh. And then body switch. It's the same. It ends the same. Way right, basically. No, not what do you mean at all. No, what do you mean no. Tell me, I can't remember. From the that. very beginning of the story, there is a adolescent child. Oh, that's right. That is the friend of Georgie. He's got a. Now we know there's something weird about her because very early in the film, she's hanging upside down on monkey bars, wearing a dress, and the dress and is, the dress never never moves. Just around her knees, but. Right after that, literally the next sentence, uh-huh. when, we're, when we go, how yeah. is her dress staying up like that? They flash to the teacher going, you need to be in class. They flash back to Georgie, who's by himself. And when asked who he's talking to, he goes, um, I don't remember the first thing he says is, but then he says, or God or something. My neighbor. My neighbor. That's right. God the neighbor something. girl right. or God or something. But we know that he knows that this isn't a real person. Right, it's other. Yes. Um, and it, it's a, some sort of protective presence around him. The first time we see her, she looks fairly normal. Right, and she as starts the story decaying. Goes on. She looks not so great. And she's not allowed to come into the house right. at the end. And so... I forgot about this whole part. She is, in the very end, Georgie is battling to not give his soul to Hester. Yes. Uh, Grandma is trying to kill him. 
um, there's a gigantic wolf lurking around outside ready to grab her soul. That's right. There, right. There's this... It's almost like the... Oh, I've forgotten Speaking what they're called. Speaking of the never-ending story, though. Uh, it yes. reminds me of the giant wolf in the never-ending story. It looks story. like the wolf from the never-ending story. Also, uh, the thing from Harry Potter. Right. Um, and I forget what it's called. I forgot what it's called, too. Well, not a Dementor. That's not it. But what I, yeah. what I like about it the is... Grim. Right, the Grim. Right, exactly. <laughs> sort of What I like about it is that realizing that this is a limited budget, they did not go all out on... You see just enough of it to know that it's It's there. just a dark shape with red eyes. Right. And that's enough. That's and fine. you see the outline of its head sometimes. I think that's very good. Thank you for not giving me a special effect that will pull me from the story. Uh, yeah. Um, at the very end, he's almost taken over by Haster, who's literally puppeteering Grandma at this point. That's right. Reaching through the back of her head, and, and yes. you see Haster briefly, not really as an object, more as a shape. As a shape, yeah. And he calls out for Mercy, who then, it turns out, is a manifestation of her younger, better self before she sold her soul. Right. Is this young girl. Is this young girl. This is maybe the first piece that she lost. Right. And so she's able to rescue him from the clutches of the evil god, or at least foil him temporarily. Uh, so the boy doesn't wind up being taken over. I really think he I really thought he did. I, not I as far really as I remember think now. That he did. He's. Uh, we do find out that Dylan McDermott uh, was very eager to turn the little boy over to Hester, because he wanted to reconnect with his lost past and get together with uh, Rebecca, the mom. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a much happier ending in this story than there was in the television presentation or the original story, I guess. I really thought that there was still a switch. I'm wrong. I'm probably wrong. You know what's funny is there's nothing, there's no synopses to tell me. Right. So. So what did you feel about this film or what did you feel it was successful as opposed to the... the um, the, I mean, you had to expand it. You had to create new characters yes. for it. I didn't like the Dylan McDermott piece. Uh-huh. I did like the asshole uncle. Mark Duplass is real good at playing an asshole. Right. And he played an asshole very well here. And it felt like a real... Like, you, they get there to pick, pick Mercy up from the hospital where she right. was supposed to have a private room and mom says I've sent you thousands of dollars and he just goes it got spent and you know as as her health has decreased we've had to add roommates to offset some of the costs and they're right. like what do you mean how many roommates and it's like five she's in a room with five other people now even though sister has been sending Right. Thousands and thousands of dollars, and I'm just like, this real. My impression is that this not real, all the roommates survived real. either. Hmm? That not all the roommates survived. That there was some sort of that's possible malefic influence, and that's the. And I think that bit. There are bits that work really well in here. Yes, I think the film works as a whole. I think so too. And it's a, it's a good. And I think movie. it's the best acting I've ever seen Chandler Riggs do. Well, it's the most you're asked him to do. I mean. When you're watching, they ask him to okay. do quite a bit in The Walking Dead, and I don't in think that he's Dead, up he's to it. Just suffering PTSD the entire time, which is correct, right? And that's <sighs> that's an appropriate and realistic realization of what happens to a person who grows up their entire childhood, um, 
in a world of zombies. Yeah, that would be what would happen. And he's just kind of stoic. Yeah. Here he gets to act. He gets to interact. I think you're also raising the bar by putting him in in a performance with a real veteran like Shirley Knight. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they act very well together. They do. And I think that it, I can see that... Like, if you told me that they right. just went on vacation for two weeks before they started filming... Right. ...to, like, get to know well, each other, I was, I'd believe What I was going to say is that I really do think that she was on the project and whoever interacted with her the best is who got the part. Oh, maybe. I really feel that, like, she was on because of this vast body of work that she has. Um, and then they just sort of had her screen test with whoever was able to mm-hmm. interact... There's a really funny scene early in the film where uh, Georgie's getting bullied. Yeah. And this is before we know that she's changed in any way uh, and beaten up. Yes. And then Grandma teaches him how to stand up to evil. Now, we know by this point she's already sold sold some of her... Yeah, she's definitively not good at standing up to evil. Right. But at the same time... She's able to give him advice, but again, the advice is slightly skewed. Yes. He then goes back and deals with one of the bullies by hitting him with his violin case, which it turns out is filled with rocks. Filled with rocks, yeah. So, I mean, that was pretty funny. It's like, uh, you could kill somebody. Right, exactly. So. But Grandma, as she is now, is less concerned with accidentally killing somebody because there's sort of a mean streak developed that's come from, you know, not having a soul. Yeah. But I like the mom, too. I'm not really familiar with the actress, uh, Frances O'Connor. And there's a really strange moment in the film, uh, just a line that Mark Duplass has. What's that? Where he makes fun of her weight. Yeah, and that it was, was weird. weird because Frances O'Connor is real thin. She's yes. But it seemed like the kind of thing that your dick brother would say yeah. just because he knows you have a problem with it. And I think that was a that was a very familial feeling moment. Um. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I, deeply realistic and fucked up family. Right, because I mean, this is a really damaged family. But like I said, there are bits that really work well. I really like the uh, the attendant who's talking about why yes. he has to carry a Bible everywhere. That was a neat He bit. doesn't like, even say why. He's just like, only when I'm dealing with her. Right. And uh, also they offer him, to. they say, can you stay for a couple of days right. to make sure that we can do everything? Because like, there's intravenous drugs and saline solution and all this right. stuff and we'll double what you're getting paid at the at the hospital and he just like laughs and walks out the door <laughs> he's like nope his nope. That performers his scenes add up to a lot in this film and i think that it it works pretty well it sets up grandma's being kind of a presence i loved Shirley Knight's performance is amazing. Yes, no, she's very, very good. The 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 bit with like walking around with a spoon sticking out of her mouth as if she has a corn bob uh, pipe or something—that's what it reminded me of, corn cob pipe—is that uh, when she's being fed, mm-hmm. they finally get the spoon in her mouth, and then she refuses to let it go. Let it go, yeah. And so she's just walking around with it in her mouth, and uh, the moments where Georgie is trying to. He does something really wicked, which is he doesn't give her her medication. Yes. In an attempt to sort of keep her awake. And the end result, of course, it's not good because she becomes homicidal. Yes. And the fact that Shirley Knight can go back and forth and do this kind of performance where she's really endearing and then homicidal the next minute. Yeah, she ends up killing Mark Duplass's character. Right. uh, And then 
of course, Georgie blames himself because she was also not medicated. also really seriously injuring Georgie's brother. Yes. At one point early in the film. So, yeah, it, it's a, her performance is amazing. Yeah. But everyone here seems to be acting at a great level. Horror movies don't really ask for much from you, but when a person turns into some, Here, turns into performance... Here's what a horror movie asks from you, right. I think. It needs you to be present, and right. it needs you to believe what you're doing. Right. Which is a big ask in a lot of horror movies, because a lot of it is... So fantastic. Fantastic, right. right. And, and the audience knows when you're like, I mean... I'm here, but we all know that this is bullshit, right? Like, that's not great. It doesn't... It's one of the reasons, like, I love Patrick Wilson's character in The Conjuring movies. Uh He's so goddamn earnest. Right. Even in in the Insidious movies, even though he's a totally different dude, even though those movies are weirdly related, so I don't... The Farmigas are both in there, too, and it's confusing. Um... But he's just like, no, 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 I am this person, and this person is experiencing well, can, these things, and that is this is what how they would behave. In Insidious, the very first film, where he just refuses to go home, even though he knows that his wife and his kid are in danger. In this yep, he's house. like, well, it's fucking scary, and, and I don't want to do it. <laughs> there's another great moment that is has nothing to do with anything in the rest of the film, where he's obsessively primping in front of a mirror. That, that is my favorite character thing in a right. movie in a very long time. And I said it, I think, in yeah, theater. Yeah, in the theater. He's, yeah, he's putting on moisturizer or something and, and doing this before-bed beauty routine right. that you never see men do, even though some men definitely well, do that stuff. Well, a man as pretty as Patrick Wilson has a right. bed routine. Right, well, and his whole job is to stay that right. pretty. Right, so, I'm yeah. remembering him But from, you never see that what in... What was his character's name in Little Children of the Prom King? You they know? called him, yeah, they called, no, Homecoming King. Homecoming King, which was, again, that was part of, like, his yeah. persona. Um, but this naked vanity... Yeah. That his character displayed. And then when, yet yeah, 10 minutes later or whatever, you see him grading papers at school, seeing how dark it is, knowing he needs to get home to make right. sure his family is safe. And like, now I'm just going to take my time here. You believe it. Because you're like, no, no, no. He's about himself. His That performance, and I lent that film to a good friend of mine. I lent her two movies. I lent her... Um, Insidious and The Descent, mm-hmm. which she loved. But she could not get through Insidious because she hated this guy's character. It's like, he's so shallow. I'm going, because he's doing a great job. Because he's doing a great job. He's doing a really that, great job. That movie will make you hate Patrick Wilson. Yeah. Which is why I love the con- that he's in The Conjuring too, and he's so- also. Right. And he's yeah. so earnest. <laughs> Right. And you're like, oh, no, he's just a good actor. Right. I don't need to punch him in the face if ever I need him. But yeah, in Insidious, yeah, you're like, this good. dude but she with not, his very punchable she could not soft get through the face. film because she just thought, no, that Fuck guy is just such a dick. I no, don't I just, deal with yeah, that, that, that scene in, that ba- in the bathroom, the, the right. before bed scene was, you know, that scene and like, and the scene from Poltergeist where they're smoking weed. Uh-huh. The the Craig parents, the Craig, yes, are are some of the best, quick, clear, understated 
character building moments that I really love. Right. But where you're just like, oh, I know who these people are. Like, I got well, okay, I'll their parents you. during the day and then at An night. older one that They love laugh. each other. They want to be- They want to bone down. Right. They want to get a little high when their kids are asleep. I'm like, I get it. I, get- I know these people. I'm there. The, um, and it's a weird one, but Donald Pleasant's in Halloween. Yes. There's this moment where he hides behind the bushes and scares some kids. Hey, your kids, get off the porch, remember? Yeah, yeah. And then he laughs to himself. And so this incredibly intense movie where yeah. it's just death, murder, things in the dark, he takes a minute just to, like, goof off because yes. it's Halloween. It's Halloween. And I thought that was a neat moment, too. Yeah. Like, okay, I, I get this guy a little bit now. Like, he's screwed up very tight, but he just, you know, he can't get through it. This is funny yeah. in, in some ways. So, yeah. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Do you... Well, okay, let's start with... Next week, All right. we are going to watch Big Driver. Big Driver. Starring Maria Bello. The a made for television wonderful Maria Bello. Film uh-huh. from 2016. I love her. Well, good. Because you're going to watch a whole movie with her in it. When I say 2016, what I actually mean is 2014. Okay. So that is the next thing that we are going to watch. It is available for rent or purchase on Amazon. We bought it because it was $4.99 to buy. And I was like, well... Seems dumb to spend three dollars when I could spend five to get it forever. Maybe what we can do right now too is issue a trigger warning to audiences. Yes, uh, this movie deals with rape and the revenge thereof. Right. So there is a not horribly explicit because it is but, a television movie. Right. It was done for Lifetime, uh, but there is there is a rape scene. There are two of them, as a matter of fact, at one point in the film. Yes. And it's hard to watch because Maria Bello is really, well, yes, I'll, we'll discuss that next week. But, but yes, it, there is, is a rape scene, so right. if you don't want to put yourself through it, uh, then I would give this a miss because it is that is the catalyst for the rest of the film. Right. It's not really something, I mean, you could skip over it. She is visibly wounded for the rest of the right. film though so and it's also referred to several times yes find out she's not the only victim so those pictures also play a part in the yes. film so yes. it's referenced it's not like you can effectively when it was going on i looked away because i'm like i don't want to need this. to watch this yeah right but it is going to be referenced in the movie that being said yeah. though it's well we're not we'll, we'll discuss it yeah but um so yeah, yeah. so but that's just that be, one we're, we're giving a warning as your friends that yeah that's going to happen in this film. In the meantime, I want to recommend something. Okay, recommend something. I recommend Lovecraft Country. Oh, really? Tell me more. We're talking about Lovecraft. Tell me more. HBO, uh, which we have HBO Max, but I think it's on all the HBOs, has just started airing the their adaptation, which is going to be a limited series, of Matt Ruff's novel, Lovecraft Country. Was it a novel or a graphic novel? It's a novel. Okay. Uh, I have not read the novel, but I've been recommended the novel several times, so I probably will read the novel when I can read again. Uh, I have read another of his books called Set This House in Order. It's one of my favorite books. I like it very, very much. I like his writing very much. Uh, This story takes place in... About the mid-50s, there's no actual year put on it. Uh, It centers a black family, uh, Atticus and his uncle, and a childhood friend. 
and they are looking for his missing father in Lovecraft country. We call it Ardham, Massachusetts, right. which is supposedly where Lovecraft-based Arkham, uh-huh. and it deals extremely heavily with race issues that were prevalent not only then, but uh, turns out still. The first episode is called Sundown. It is referencing sundown towns, where if you were black and it was dark, they would kill you. That's not uh, it's hyperbole. Not it's not a fantasy. This that is, is what happened. Yes. Naperville, Illinois is a famous sundown town. Uh, but apparently there were many, many in the Northeast. I did not, I don't know. He, uh, Atticus's uncle, one of the things that he does in addition to his regular daily life is to put together green books, possibly made famous by the terrible film from recently called Green Book. But this was a, a book that was distributed to black people so that they could safely navigate the free, new freeway system, highway system, in the United States, they could find businesses that would serve them, towns that would uh, lo- house them, lodge them uh, without too much danger, and of course, warn them off of the towns where they could not stay or drive through at night. Uh, and a lot of time, times, like they would have white people in the car with them so that they were the driver rather than the actual traveler because then they would be accepted in some of these locations. So pro tip, get you a white friend. It's terrible. It's Mm -hmm. real. It's not that long ago. Uh, So all of that is is, uh, heavily... Like, that is the theme. The theme of the show is racism. The sub-theme of the show is, oh, also there are monsters. Yeah. There are Lovecraftian-ass monsters. <laughs> I, yeah, it's an interesting show because I don't know where it's headed from here. The second episode... The second ev- episode was very different than the first. Right. It was... Even more in your face. And then it ended. Like like a whole vignette ended and we're moving to a whole different time and place. very cramped and very story-heavy, I think, the second episode. Yes. The first one is literally kind of an edge-of-your-seat thriller most yes. of the time, especially the last half. Um, the second was very similar to these movies that we've right. watched. Uh, and then the third is a whole... Se- we haven't watched it yet. Right. Um, it came out yesterday, so we, we can watch it, but we haven't watched it yet. Uh, and it's a whole separate thing where Letty, the uh, who's played by Mallette, is going to buy a house in a white neighborhood. So here we go. And they, I believe, are based in Chicago. So that is where the story is set. Well, some of it, because they were in Artem, Massachusetts, uh, in the last episode. So we don't know what's going to happen, but it's very good. Uh, it will make you look at racism right in the fucking face, which uh, I think more people need to be doing. Especially now. It's it's part of... Um... It's appropriate to the time that we're living in. It is. And it probably in a way that they wish it wasn't. Yeah. We shouldn't still be having this discussion. No. Uh, from the point of view of someone who grew up reading a lot of pulp fiction, there's a there's Easter eggs for people who like this kind of stuff. The opening of the first um first episode 
is a fantasy that yes. our main character Atticus is having. Yes. Having digested a lot of pulp fiction. Yes. And War of the Worlds. By the side of H.G. Wells' Martians. Deja Thoris. Yes. The Princess of Mars. And the Cthulhu all show up. All show up. Right. And always like, rescued by happening? Jackie Robinson. It's very That's right. funny. Jackie Robinson it's, does that, take a That down. was like a big kind of... Um, uh, a big present to people who read, and there is that also in the second episode when uh, the uncle is played by Courtney B. Vance. Yes, who's great. Who's great? Uh, finds a library that is just stocked with his favorite books, and it includes William yes. Hodgson and Clark Ashton Smith. And these are names that anybody who loved this genre will go, "Oh my God, yes, I can remember." Yeah. At one point, uh, doing like the uh, the treatment for a film adaptation of one of. House on the Borderland. Right. Yeah. Uh, Hodgson's novels. And um, yeah, so anybody who loves this kind of fiction, they're going to get a kick out of it because there's a lot for you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't know where it's going, but mm-hmm. it's 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 going there beautifully. It right. looks really great. The acting is fantastic. Yeah. Like you said, Courtney B. Vance doing some great work. Uh, the main character who was in The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Uh, is great. I don't. I haven't seen that, so I don't have a lot of experience with him. But I really like him. He's very engaging. I have to say, the actor who plays Atticus. Yes. Let me get his name because I don't want to get it wrong. He's very good, Jonathan Majors, who in Last Black Man in San Francisco is playing. I it, what seems to be a person who has who's on the spectrum somewhere. Okay. So the range of performance I've seen him in now, because in these episodes, he's not only acting as the protagonist, at some points he's an action hero. He has an amazing range. Yeah. Because and he is convincing. ripped in this. He's ripped. Uh, and, and yeah, there, I was in a Stephen King Facebook group, and they had uh-huh. talked about this uh, show. And I did not add anything to the conversation. But one of the people had commented, you know, I tuned in, but I was really dismayed by the focus on race. I'm looking for escapism. I'm going to give the second episode a chance. He'd only watched the first episode. And it was all I could do to just be like, you're going to have a bad time. Because the point of this show is the horrors surrounding racism. They are also doing monster things and magic things and things like that. But the first episode is called Sundown. It is an explicit, and it doesn't get more explicit than reference to sundown towns. There is a race with the police officer to cross a county line before the sun sets or this police officer is going to kill them. There's no bones made about it. The second episode is called Whitey's on the Moon. And it is not only called Whitey's on the Moon, but it is soundtracked by Gil Scott Heron reading the poem Whitey's on the Moon, which is explicitly about racism. Hey y'all, it's Amity here editing, and unfortunately my recording of a back-to-back episodes became the beginning of one episode and the end of another, so we lost the rest of our 
conversation about Lovecraft Country, but in summation, go watch it. It's real, real good. And uh, we'll go ahead and have to re-record our episode of Big Driver. That's what's up next week. Big Driver, once again, available on Amazon to buy relatively inexpensively or rent. And do recall the trigger warning for rape on that one. Here's the plugs. Have a good week. Thanks, y'all. If you have questions, comments, concerns, it's not a word, concerns, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at latecomerspod. You can find us on Facebook, Facebook by, Facebook. yeah, these days, Facebook by typing in Latecomers Podcast up in the search bar. I think you can still do that in the new Facebook. I don't know. I don't like it. It's weird. Until next week, I remind you to take your medicine, and we remind you, better Better late late than than never. never.